the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Most people paying attention to what's happening in the crypto world would have heard of the collapse of the FTX exchange. Fewer people are aware that a total of 54 exchanges have failed since the collapse of FTX and for a variety of reasons. It's been called the graveyard of crypto exchanges. In South Africa, we had the sudden collapse of crypto exchange Ice Cubed in 2021. But looking across the globe, hundreds of these exchanges have folded in the last two years. Some, like Moon XBT and SwipeSwap, just disappeared without any apparent reason. Some were outright scams, others closed for business reasons, others for regulatory reasons. If 54 crypto exchanges have shut down over the last few months, it's fair to ask, how safe are your assets on an exchange? And what questions should you be asking of the exchange that has custody of your assets? Or whether, in fact, you should move assets off these exchanges and into self-custody? To help us make sense of this, we're joined by Joey Garcia, who is Chief Legal and Regulatory Officer at Zappo Private Bank. And he's a specialist consultant to the United Nations on crypto regulation. Welcome, Joey. It's good to have you on the MoneyWed Crypto Podcast. It's pretty alarming that 54 exchanges have folded just since the collapse of FTX in November 2022. You've been looking into this. What, in your opinion, is going on here? And is this unusual in a market which is, as yet, rather thinly regulated? Yeah, that's a good question. The unfortunate sort of reality is that it's no one should really have been that surprised. If you, if you think about, I mean, people talk about regulated markets in lots of different ways. And when you talk about the crypto regulated market, what are the core objectives of regulation? Really to protect and benefit people, to create sort of secure economic environments. So what does regulation actually mean for some of these crypto trading platforms? Um, the reality is that in too many cases, not too much. So most jurisdictions in the world have looked to comply with pretty basic standards by creating, let's just call it compliance frameworks for regulated platforms. But if you think of the example like uh, like FTX, these are giant global multi-billion dollar trading platforms. And you know, what are the rules that they're operating to? Do, do, they, do they comply with I don't know, core basic principles of risk management, uh, resilience, uh, whatever, capital ad- adequacy, insurance, customer care, I mean, basic principles of consumer protection. And the answer is no. It's, it's all very well having rules in place around you know, segregation of customer assets, if you like. But these trading platforms, in too many cases, are completely commingled. All assets are commingled. There's too much sort of contagion risk around too many issues and and it just repeatedly happens I mean you said 54 since FTX there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of platforms that have uh, wound up pre-FTX and you know, some pretty big ones as well I mean to give you I'll give you one or two examples I mean the the Quadriga case not that far back um, I think they were Canadian based I mean there you had such a degree of centralized control, the principal or owner or backer basically had one access key to all of the assets of all customers. And those keys were effectively lost. I think it was a train accident or whatever it was. And there was $250 million of assets. So if you're operating a platform where there's no requirement to have any form of those sort of segregation, security, or safeguarding requirements around customer assets, of course, 
these things are going to happen. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's too it's too obvious. And I mean, I'm not going to do a full sort of debrief on on FTX, but you know, there you're. I mean, to look at some of the specific issues, you had this uh, FTX token, the FTT. You know, these these tokens were basically being bought back by the profits that were being generated by the FTX platform. So this is you know arguably links the value of the asset to the performance of the exchange. So this starts to feel like almost like equity. It starts to feel as almost like a, a buyback uh, mechanism. And, you know, the arrangements in place between the FTX entities, Alameda and FTX in that case, I mean, you're, you're talking about absolutely spectacular conflicts that weren't managed. Um, and then you're talking about, you know, the risk of these sort of conflicts managements, you know, that the head of risk management of the FTX platform had two years of experience. So when people say to me, oh, this is just incredible. How could all this happen? I mean, to me, it's incredible that it hasn't happened more. And it's incredible that it lasted for as long as it did. But these are real sort of core fundamental issues with many of these, many, not all, but many of these uh, exchange platforms. And those exchange platforms, as you know, and as you've mentioned, you know, they are the access point to this technology. So people need to make a distinction, right? So you can believe in the technology, you can believe in the value of an asset, you can believe in the Bitcoin protocol and its mission statement, but what's your access point to that technology? If the if the access point to the technology is through an exchange platform and you have no degree of faith in that intermediary, that, that uh, access point, the risk sits with the exchange. It sits with the intermediary. It doesn't sit with the technology. And some people make that sort of pretty significant error of saying, well, you see the markets are all collapsing because FTX was all a fad. And yes, the access point to the technology had too many issues. Is that a flaw in the underlying uh, use case of uh, of the tech or its purpose or its mission? I don't think so at all. But but there are way too many issues with, um, with exchange platforms. I don't know if you want me to go into any other detail around that, but I mean, I'm happy to do that, whatever, whatever you prefer. Before we came on air, we were talking about the the quality of management that you get. Or, uh, to be more specific, what you were saying, and I'd like you to elaborate on this point, is that you've got some very smart young people involved in the technological development in this space, in the crypto space. But as soon as you bump into the regulatory aspects, they're just completely out of their depth. Uh, and I think this is what we're finding, because just recently the the uh, the Security and Exchange Commission in the U.S has really started to hammer on the two biggest exchanges, Binance and Coinbase, fairly or unfairly. And, and I think that there's a big argument around that. But give us your thoughts around that. Yeah, I mean, look, most large platforms that operate to ILO, I mean, Coinbase is the most spectacular example. They've been pursuing the question of regulation for a long, long time. They're, they're begging to be regulated. And sometimes the issue is that you know jurisdictions around the world cannot move legislation does not evolve and develop at the same pace as underlying uh, technology so sometimes if the frameworks aren't really there or they haven't really been built and they don't really exist uh, to an appropriate level the the sort of gut reaction is to try to move this new technology into a legacy framework so in the us you have the classic sort of securities argument what is a virtual asset and you're at a stage now, not to go into a sort of in-depth analysis, but you have the position of the SEC is effectively that all virtual assets constitute a form of 
security. So now you are brought within these uh, legacy frameworks that are simply not appropriate. Why are they doing that? Because if you are operating under, I mean, the US, these MSB or money service business registrations, if you're operating in lots of different countries around the world to standard sort of compliant frameworks, and as you say correctly, with young, energetic, dynamic, innovative people, they are not focusing on, you know, key fundamental principles of how markets need to operate. So to use the most obvious one is is the principle of, of, of market integrity. I want to trade on a market that uh, I know fosters, you know, transparency, efficiency, uh, fairness, uh, resilience. I don't want to operate on markets that, that are construed as sort of fraudulent or, or manipulative, where there is, you know, front running and bid rigging and wash trading and uh, all these pump and dump style approaches. And that, that's kind of endemic. Why is it endemic? Because the law does not exist. There are no developed market integrity standards for training platforms in the space around the world. So if you're a user in South Africa or anywhere in the world, you're gaining exposure to a market that you're not really quite sure how it's going to operate from a pure, simple pricing mechanism, you know, and there are so many examples of this. I mean, sort of fake volumes that are generated by fake accounts to, to sort of create impressions of volumes. Uh, I mean, beyond that, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I can give you. Just but, explain how these fake volumes are created and, and what is the purpose of doing that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's price manipulation. So if you think of post-ICO, IEO, universities, initial exchange offerings, you know, theoretically, it sounds great. I want to release uh, an asset and I want to do it through an exchange platform to only to users that have been onboarded. So I'm sort of dealing with the compliance risk, let's say. Um, but what, what could actually happen, what did actually happen in, in lots of those cases was the exchange itself would effectively, you know, you say you want to raise $10 million, the exchange raises the $10 million through an offering of the uh, asset to its registered users. But it, what it actually does is control, let's say, 70% of that volume itself. It buys it itself. So it buys 70% of, 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 uh, of, of an asset, and then it starts to create fake news. So, you know, really obvious dissemination of fake information through media, internet, other means. Uh, there can be influencers. It basically false and misleading signals as to what that asset is, or what it can do, all the classic dissemination of rumors and all these sort of artificial levels of data, et cetera. And it creates interest. So people then start looking at, oh, wow, look at this. And, and then the exchange can itself create, let's say a thousand fake accounts. And it's basically buying and selling between those accounts. Uh, so it's, it's volume between itself, but externally looking in, it looks like volume. Um, and the price, obviously, if you control 70% of any market, you can do whatever you want with the price and, and they would move the price, move it one way, more disseminated information, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until users like you and me come into the market and say, wow, look at this. I was following this feed on Twitter and I've seen all these amazing people doing all this stuff and it's so wonderful. I want to, I want to buy into this market. Um, and then obviously, you know, the exchange can really do whatever it likes and it can, um, as soon as it, the, the, the target price is hit, it can basically drop all of its assets and almost sort of unwind the business really. And, and that's 
market manipulation that's uh, creating fake markets. So, you know, this is the problem. People, you know, when 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 a user, when an average user in South Africa wants to open an, uh, an account with an exchange, what level of due diligence does it do on that exchange platform? Does it look at trading standards or does it look at the regulation that applies to it, I would say probably not. That's in the world, by the way, not specific to South Africa. People don't really do that. They tend to look at, you know, public news. They might look at the quality of the website. They might look at um, people that are linked to it or things that they've heard. And that is a that is a real problem. It's a real problem. And yeah, as I say, with principles as cause, like pure sort of marketing. So I'll give you another really interesting example, which is again post FTX. Lots of people started talking about, you know, the issues and, and the, the, the reaction from the industry was, or, or from the exchanges at least, was to start to publish the sort of proof of reserves. So you can have public entries and they're still there today. And you can look at exchanges would publish the, the proof of the assets that they held. And those are obviously published on open networks, on open blockchains that people can have access to and sort of validate. Oh, it's true. I can see my counterpart really does hold all of these assets and that's great but again proof of reserves uh, don't don't reflect debt so it's it's a pure sort of balance sheet that sits there it's not recording any liability that's registered against that business so it's not a proof of solvency it's a proof of a reserve so again it creates other fake issues where you know if i show you a balance sheet of you know, $1,000 and I don't have to show you a liability of $50,000 and you have faith in my balance sheet and that's your source of comfort. Again, that's not particularly uh, constructive. Well, it's, I mean, it's constructive in the sense that it's a baby step in the right direction, but, you know, the market needs to move a long, long way before it can provide um, the level of comfort that I would expect to be provided to to, to, to users uh, around the world. And, and, and these are things that most people are not really aware of. So it's something I definitely encourage people to look at in as much detail as reasonably possible. There, there has been a lot of discussion around the proof of reserve as opposed to the proof of solvency. So on the proof of reserve, you're just really looking at one side of the balance sheet. With the proof of solvency, you get the fuller picture. And this is relevant because there was a fairly famous case which came up in New Zealand, Cryptopia, which was a, a crypto exchange which failed. And it went to court to establish the assets that were under custody. Who did they belong to? Did it, you know, was it part of the estate of the company, as we would say here in South Africa? Uh, or were these held under trust? And this is something I think that a lot of these crypto exchanges are, are having to battle with. And, and we had the same argument here when Ice Cubed in South Africa collapsed. People are wondering, well, you know, was the company actually just the policeman or the, the guardian of my assets? No, it, it, it appears that the, they were for part of the estate. It doesn't, you're, you know, as they say, not your keys, not your coins, right? Yeah, I mean, but it's this is why I mentioned at the beginning the the whole sort of point around segregation of assets. You know, if you forget about crypto, go into the banking universe, or you no, know, even go into the electronic money or e-money or payment services related space. If you have user assets, they need to be held on segregated and safeguarded accounts to the credit of of that user, and they need to be held on bank accounts that are also determined as being safeguarded and segregated accounts. 
So you will always know that in that example of an e-money related business, I think you could throw Revolut in there or any others, that's pretty basic. Those assets need to be available to that user. And in an insolvency event, they are completely segregated and off the balance sheet of the, the, of, of the business. In the crypto world, that doesn't exist. Why? Well, the law doesn't exist. The requirements uh, don't exist. In practice, it doesn't exist. Who does due diligence on whether an exchange is commingling its own assets with the assets of a user? Who does due diligence on whether an exchange is taking user assets and lending those assets or doing, I mean, deploying it for its own investment purposes, for its own yields? I mean, unless you're doing a proper assessment, you you just don't know what is happening. So this is the question, and these are the gaps. And, and I think, you know, there's a gap in knowledge and the gap in knowledge is not just from the average consumer. I think it goes all the way up to the policymakers um, and even the regulatory authorities. There, there are regulators in the world, like many normal people, that are in a, in a, they're in a learning environment in, in this space. So, you know, the, the starting point principle of the FSB, et cetera, the stability board is, you know, it's, it's, the same activity, same risk, same regulation. So let's just apply existing rules. And that's the gut reaction of many of these authorities. They don't really look at the intricate details. They don't really look at the new forms of risk and they don't really they don't really integrate and and and, and discuss the developments with the industry. There isn't that sort of collaborative approach to understanding the technology and how regulation can can evolve and change. Innovation is a really strong word. I, I love the use of the, the, the term innovation in, in any developing space, but regulators need to do it as well. Then there has to be regulatory innovation. There, there has to be you know policy innovation, if you want to call it that word. I, I'm not sure if that's appropriate, but you, you can't start to fix um, this new tech and new world into uh, legacy buckets and baskets. I, I really don't think you do that. And the authorities need to be open to it. And by big, becoming open to it, all of the risks that you're talking about will be addressed and they'll be addressed in, in the correct way and in the appropriate way. And that is what the industry wants. I, I think you know, we want to have a secure ecosystem and a secure environment where users can gain access to the technology and the, the, the benefits of its application and use. That's my uh, goal and, and most of the stuff that I do and obviously with the Zappa group. Well, tell us a bit about your background. I mean, I did mention in the beginning your chief legal and regulatory officer at Zappo Private Bank, which is the world's first Bitcoin bank. And you're also a consultant to the United Nations. How did you get started and, and what got you into this? Yeah, so I met the, the principal of Zappo, Wences Casara is one of the most sort of famous guys in that space back in 2014 or whatever it was. And, and back then, um, I really couldn't say I knew what the Bitcoin protocol was, and he came and he uh, he came to Gibraltar and we had a they were doing a jurisdictional sort of assessment, uh, a discovery exercise, and and he said to me, you know, there's this is a new world, this is this is a new world, and the biggest gap that exists at the moment is is the law and regulation. There is no reg- it did not exist in 2014, and he said there's a real opportunity for for a small jurisdiction and he i mean i say small jurisdiction because naturally small jurisdictions can move much much faster than 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 large uh countries 
Um, and there, there's an opportunity to develop a framework. So, you know, that was the trigger for me approaching the government here locally and uh, proposing the sort of concept of a working group to develop, literally building from the ground up a new regulatory standard for for uh, for for the space. So that that's what my initial touch point to that universe was, and I built that framework. I worked towards that, that for uh, a few years, and then obviously as a result of that, you get lots of touch points to most of the industry around around the world. Uh, obviously, Zappos is my 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 core f- function and focus, but I work with most of the large platforms um, around the world, from the protocol layers to the new DeFi universe to uh, the analytic side to, to lots and lots of new developing areas. And as, as, as you say, as a result of that, I used my experience to work with the uh, UN and the UNODC in, in assessing countries and helping them identify gaps and uh, risks and, 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 and how to approach them. I do that through many, many different initiatives and working groups that I, w- I won't bore you with. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a proponent of, as I say, developing the right standards and the right um, ecosystem and that was really why i joined the, the zappa group as well i see them very very much on the front end of that um and that's what i've been very happy to contribute to mm, let's come back to zappa in a minute i just want to go back to the issue of crypto exchanges and, and why so many of them fail i'm inclined to suspect that there's it's because there's so little regulation or because there's so little regulation, it's quite easy for somebody to launch an exchange. So you can get into this business, fairly low barriers to entry. They may struggle for business reasons, not being able to attract enough customers or they're charging fees that are too high, so they're just not competitive. And then, of course, you've got security breaches as well. This does tend to point to a likely period of consolidation ahead. Uh, we've already started seeing that. Uh, or you know more and more of these these crypto exchanges just dis- disappearing. What what do you expect? Look, I think that's a good question. Um, I definitely think the direction of travel is pretty obvious. There's a lot of, I mean, it is easy to set up an exchange platform, but it's very very difficult to generate um, and have the liquidity on one of those platforms to to offer a, a, an attractive a market. So what people are less aware of is that many of the exchanges that they interact with are effectively sort of white label solutions. So there are lots of sort of plug through solutions where, um, and it happened a lot, it happened with the FTX situation as well. There were lots and lots of exchanges that were effectively through flows and using the FTX platform for the uh, liquidity and volumes on their exchange. The user, uh, you or me, doesn't look at that. We we don't know that that is actually happening. So there's a lot of through flow risk um, to the underlying uh, exchange. Lots of the large platforms have almost sort of cloud-based solutions that they offer to small exchanges to sort of uh, quasi plug and play. And that's the only way that those uh, small exchanges can, can operate. So that creates a lot of risk. And that is the way that the large exchanges also um, build on their own liquidity. They're not going to go into massive marketing initiatives and development phases in uh, 55 uh, countries. So they, they they plug through into these small exchange platforms and that's the way of developing their own network and, uh, and build in very, very small tranches onto the liquidity. So that happens a lot. Of course, then you come back to that same question of centralized risk around these large 
sometimes completely unregulated platforms, and that creates um, all, all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of issues. Can people pick up on that? Sometimes they can't. Can people really understand who their counterpart is? So I'm going to give you another interesting example. If you talk about some large platforms, I don't really like to go into sort of names, etc. But there are platforms that are super regulated in jurisdiction X, and they're super regulated in jurisdiction Y, and they are um, a listed company in jurisdiction Z. Um, and that is the public profile of the company. And, and that is what they use to generate uh, trust in average users like you and me. But in, in reality, they then have another entity uh, that is a, an unregulated platform registered in the Seychelles. And if you look at the volume of transactions that happen on that branded exchange platform, it can be like 80% that happen through the completely unregulated platform in the Seychelles. But their core branding to the user is as Oh, look at us. We're super regulated here. We're a listed company there. So, you know, again, it comes down to, you know, know your exchange, know your VASP, know your platform, you know, in, in, in the banking world or in the financial services world in South Africa, I'm sure the average user takes a huge degree of comfort in dealing with a, a bank or institution that is uh, regulated by the appropriate authority. And that is the comfort factor because they, they know that it has to operate to certain standards and they're also subject to that level of supervision by the authorities in South Africa. So that's the comfort factor. In, in the crypto world, they just don't know. You People just don't know. Firstly, they sometimes don't even know where the business is registered and that is the nature of a digital online cross-border network and industry. And then they don't go into that due diligence. They don't, no one goes into, I mean, you don't open a bank account by conducting forensic DD on a bank. You just take comfort that it's operating to a certain standard. So I, if you ask me the question, if you did, what's the direction of travel? I would hope that it, it continues to move in the direction of knowing, users being able to know and actually ask the question of where is this platform regulated and okay, it's registered in that country or it's registered here in South Africa. And I know that it's operating to this level. And therefore, I am at least take that degree of comfort. The, the reality is that doesn't happen. And also the reality is there's a massive level of, uh, sort of global arbitrage. Uh, it's a regulatory arbitrage at the, at the moment. Because when, when you're a platform, even if you're a platform based in South Africa, you want to become a registered or licensed business. And you'll conduct a jurisdictional assessment and uh, and the, you, you'll look at you know 10 countries and you'll look at sometimes sometimes you'll look at the highest possible standard available and sometimes you'll look at the lowest possible standard available and if you're digital online and operating sort of globally you wouldn't necessarily need to be registered in South Africa to service uh, the South African community and would the average uh, South African user ask that question or look at the counterpart and you know they wouldn't they wouldn't anywhere in the world so that that's one of the issues so the arbitrage nature of how this works countries so they go full tilt and they'll create really substantive frameworks and then there can be platforms who think oh yeah i can be i can become registered there but i have to inherit like all of these additional requirements so why don't i just register in the other place and it's really, really, really simple. Is that going to cost me 
um, is there a is there a is there a is there a burn rate? Is there a drop off rate because I'm registered in an unregulated country? Nope, most of the time there isn't. So that's a that's another question that needs to be considered. We, we'd love to see the world adapting the same standard, but that that's also not going to happen. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're just running a little short on time. I want to rattle through a few questions. If, if You've got your own podcast called Mavericks, which people can listen to on zappobank.com. Zappo spelt with an X, X-A-P-O-B-A-N-K.com. I listened to a few. I was pretty interested in your discussion with Daniel Fogel, CEO of Bitso, which I think you mentioned earlier was the biggest exchange. They've got about 6 million users in South America. Um, and he was talking about the evolution of money. It was a very interesting discussion. It's pretty clear that exchanges like Binance and, in fact, Bitso itself are evolving in the banking space. I find this fascinating, this idea. These exchanges are, are not so much about the speculative appeal of crypto. They are moving into transactions and derivatives and all sorts of markets which are pretty much occupied and monopolized by the traditional finance sector. What's what's your take on all of that? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, Bitso are the largest platform in in Latin America by by quite some way. They also pursued a license in Gibraltar because they were pursuing the highest possible standard that an exchange could operate to. So, the framework in 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 Gibraltar is the only one in the world that has a purpose built, developed market integrity standard for for trading platforms. But you're you're right as well. Like evolution has to happen. It ha- it's happened in every industry that we can. Imagine, and I can give loads. I mean, think about the evolution of uh, technology. So, uh, you know, music and sort of fake file sharing systems on Pirate Bay and Napster, etc. That was a starting point. It moved through to what we all deal with today, Spotify and Apple Music and all of the appropriately registered and regulated uh, businesses. Same with telecoms, right? So you had Skype and uh, Skype didn't apply for telecoms licenses in 50 different countries. They worked on uh, as a ISP, and and that evolved into now what everyone uses. In, it's a com- communications tech has evolved, and like you and I have been in contact on on WhatsApp. Again, you can hit a button, contact your friend in South Africa, to New York, or whatever it might be. It's all evolved. Evolution happens, and it's happened when we talk about blockchain. I don't know consensus mechanisms. You can go back to the Middle Ages for consensus about I don't know invasions of an army or whatever it was, and same with the like cryptography in the crypto space it happened with the whatever Enigma machine World War II. Um, so everything has developed, everything has evolved, and you know this is another evolution. So what's happening with these exchanges? What's they're taking advantage of that technology? in new in new ways and it has to be new so I, I love the example of sort of candles you know candles could have evolved forever they could have had 80,000 rounds of evolution and they would never have become a light bulb so th- th- and this is the same silly uh, example we're, we're talking about completely new infrastructure for payments and services and uh, users, why am I going to live in Mexico where bits are registered and try and execute a transaction to my cousin in New York and pay 7% of, of the cost and wait four days when I can do it on an immediate sort of cross-border payment system um, super efficiently at no cost on a direct sort of peer-to-peer basis? Why wouldn't I 
do that. So I see that the exchanges are on the front end of a lot of the exciting stuff, but you know they're also they are on the front end of some risk, not bit so, but you know there are pressure points from authorities around the world, and they and this is kind of quasi crosses across crosses to the Zappos story. So Exchange X registered in jurisdiction Y, you know they are registered to provide exchange services. They are not registered to act as deposit-taking institutions or banks. They're not registered or regulated to provide payment services. They're not registered or regulated to provide derivatives trading or lending-related activity. But they historically, a lot of those activities have fallen under the bracket of of a VASP, so uh, a virtual asset service provider like like an exchange. And that's where you know the Zappo piece comes into that because we are we are a blockchain native uh, bank, so we want a user to be able to interact with that ecosystem. We we want a user to be able to interact with with an exchange, trade, conduct the activity. Can conduct whatever activity he'd like to conduct on that exchange platform at his own risk or her own risk. But then if they want to move those assets and just save them, keep them, keep them safe, uh, and they want to move that onto their bank account, that can be pretty complex in, in, in lots of uh, scenarios. So with, with Zappo, it's completely different. It's a, it's a blockchain stablecoin native system where you can move an asset from the exchange, let's say USDC or USDT, and as soon as it hits your Zappo account, it auto converts and it becomes US dollars on your bank account. And there you're talking about a completely different level of security uh, under insurance, under the deposit guarantee scheme, under you know a simple interest-bearing safe uh, bank account. But it, but it, it's designed in a way to act as that bridge between uh, the risky world, take risk, take whatever risk you like. Um, but we want to be the secure entry and exit point to that to that space, and that will, I think, it will eventually happen uh, in more and more parts of the world. I, I, you know, sometimes I find it funny when I hear people talk about CBDCs, you know, central bank issued digital currencies, and uh, how many banks in South Africa um, issue a, a new uh, national currency, or however quickly the Bank of England issues a, a digital pound, or the Fed issues a digital dollar, all of the banks in in that country would need to support that they need to have the tech infrastructure the wallet services the conversion services that's going to take years so i sometimes say that you know zappos kind of the future of banking and that we're already doing that we're doing that with stablecoin networks we we can you can send a cross-border transaction at no cost from your bank account so right and easy. i think it's important to to mention that, that, that you have taken because people might be a little bit skeptical, you know, what, what exactly is a bit, Bitcoin bank? You've already mentioned that, you, you know, you can deposit your Bitcoin there. You've got some serious security there. Uh, you can convert that into a stable coin, a USDC, uh, at very low cost. But I think what maybe people don't understand is there's levels of insurance behind that. So uh, we were talking earlier about proof of reserve and proof of solvency. Just uh, very quickly in, in 30 seconds, if you could just describe what that is. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, well, we, we don't need to talk about proof of reserves or proof of sovereignty because we're fully audited. So when you're fully audited by KPMG, um, that problem in inverted commas evaporates because obviously an audit process is, is significantly more complex and thorough than than a simple 
you know public statement of uh, of a balance sheet that that exists uh, we provide i mean all of the problems you've heard recently of banks and all these fractional reserve related issues or lending we conduct no not even lending related activity so from the user's perspective on his us dollar account there is no risk i mean there's that it's completely managed and you as a user receiving 4.1% and we've applied the same principle to your bitcoin account so on your bitcoin account you're receiving 1% yield at zero risk we we are not using or deploying or touching a customer's btc and we're still paying a, a 1% interest rate or, or on on that asset and under the strictest possible safeguarding and segregation rules and i mean yeah we talk about the funny stuff uh you know i, I remember within the ftx stuff when the the bankruptcy filings were made there was a really famous uh quote by the ceo the the new ceo john ray and he said he'd never seen in his career such a complete failure of corporate controls and complete absence of trustworthy financial information so just take the diametric opposite of that and think about a fully audited crypto related credit institution bank uh and you know have a look at the board of uh of of the of the board of zappo and it's you know really really seriously heavyweight so i think we are we are in a very comfortable situation in positioning ourselves as a you know flight to safety a secure entry and exit point to that ecosystem Joey Garcia, Chief Legal and Regulatory Officer at Zapo Private Bank. Thanks very much for joining us on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. And we'd love to have you back again because I know that there's going to be a lot to talk about perhaps a little bit later in the year. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, Go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.